Every night I fall asleep with whiskey in my mind, hoping that I might wake up next to you. But I know I walk along in the morning dew and head back out on the rolling highway blue. Darling, don't regret leaving a drunken fool. Darling, don't respect a man that don't care for you. Never go back to the road and highway blue. Darling, don't regret leaving a drunken fool. Never go back to the rolling highway blues. Keep cool with WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I gotta get out, but my car won't go. I shovel and I shovel and I shovel that snow. afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased to have Elizabeth George here in the studio with me. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's great to see you. I should say we're taping the show. It's July 19th, 2016. Um, and Elizabeth, you're in town uh, doing a reading for the latest Lindley novel, mm -hmm. A Banquet of Consequences. Um and, of course, you're the, the New York Times bestselling author. <laughs> and this is where we set the fireworks off. Yes, yes, please. <laughs> and you've been on a bit of a book tour, right? Yeah, no, not a heavy one this time because uh, I'm out publicizing the, um, the trade paper, paperback edition 
of um, a banquet of consequences. So does that mean we're going to see you coming through town again with uh, the next, like the hardcover of the next book? Yeah, that would be great. Would I that would be love Believing to. the Lie? or is that No, the next one or... is a book that I'm working on right now. Oh. So uh, that book will be published either in late 2017 or very or early 2018. But I am in the midst of writing it, even as we practically speak. Ooh, will it jinx it if we talk a little bit about it? Um, you know, I can give you a little bit of information only. Okay. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to give you any more than that. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we'll, we'll see how we go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, and so Elizabeth is in town um, reading at Nicholas Books and kindly stopped by the studio today to talk with me. Um, before we go any further, I'll just read your short bio, Elizabeth. Sure. Um, and thanks to Shannon Toomey uh, at Penguin Books um, for sending the book. Elizabeth George is the author of highly acclaimed novels of psychological suspense. Is it 19 now? It is, yes. 19. (laughs) She won the Anthony and Agatha Best First Novel Awards in America and received the Grand Prix de Literature. Ooh. Policier. Policier, yeah. (laughs) In France. In 1990, she was awarded the prestigious German Prize for International Mystery Fiction, the Mimi. Her novels have now been adapted for television by the BBC and for quite some time, actually, hasn't it? The Lindley series has been on those BBC. Yeah, yeah. They they did a number of them, and um, it's it's, it's been this amazing international hit, so they just keep repeating it around the world, which is exciting. If you ever decide to do a movie of this, I think it's going to be kind of hard to bump Nathaniel Parker and um, Sharon Sharon Small. Small. Yes, yeah. They, they've sort of been grafted onto the characters even. Yeah, they did a nice job with the characters, those two. Let me finish your bio. See, I'm Sorry. starting. I'm getting, no, I, I'm the one that did it. I'm too eager to talk with you, apparently, Elizabeth. Forgive me. An Edgar and McCavity nominee, as well as the New York Times and international best-selling author, Elizabeth George, lives on Woodby Island in the state of Washington. Um, which which brings us to the next stop on your book tour, which is Elliott Bay Book Company. Yes. And you were saying right before we came on the air... It's your stomping grounds. Yes, it is, because Elliott Bay Books uh, has moved. It used to be down in uh, Pioneer Square, down by the water in Seattle, and it moved up to where I, uh, my husband and I have a condo, which is up on Capitol Hill. And uh, it was a great excitement in the neighborhood when Elliott Bay Books moved up there. They have a beautiful store. Anybody who goes to Seattle, you definitely want to stop in and see it. It's just, it's beautiful. It has this, it has the same feeling of the old store, which was kind of funky. Um, but the, the, new, the new store is uh, simultaneously um, funky and um, easy to work around, get through, and eat in if you want to. So it's a really neat place. Oh, and close to home. Yeah, I can walk. From the condo, yeah, I, oh, I used to work at Richard Hugo House oh, you did? for a number of years, oh and, and at Six Arms. So Capitol Hill was my old stomping grounds. What too, were you Elizabeth. doing at Hugo House? Um, so many different jobs for the, the years I was there, but now then I came here. For oh my school. gosh, that's great! <laughs> I'm going to be teaching a course at um, Hugo House in October with uh, my fellow writer Claire Meeker. 
Oh. And we're doing a day long, it's actually a day long seminar. Oh, yes. I remember the, Claire. Oh, you know yes, Claire? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk okay. more about this later. Um, but but back to what we were starting to talk about, Elizabeth, yeah. about the, the characters. Because you were saying that the BBC, with their presentation of the Lindley series, has done quite quite a nice nice job. The characters, when I was reading through the, the book, um, A Banquet of Consequences, I was surprised they aren't described like the ones that I had come to know from that right. television program. Um, yeah, because they, they, the characters on television don't resemble my characters physically in any way. Um, what I always tell people is that, um, you know, when you read a book, you develop your own idea of what a character looks like anyway, no matter what the writer tells you the character looks like. So uh, even though Nathaniel and Sharon didn't look like Lindley and Havers, I, my Lindley and Havers, the ones in my brain, um, I wasn't bothered by that so much because my main concern was that they capture the uh, the character of Lindley and the character of Havers, which I think they did really well. But of course, the reality is that Barbara Havers is, is you know, short and dumpy and not particularly attractive and dresses terribly and has a, a, a chip on her shoulder. And, and for part of the series, her, you know, she's had part of, she's had a tooth, half of a tooth knocked out in a, in a fight that she gets into with a killer. <laughs> she's scrappy. Yeah, she really is. And uh, so Sharon Small is is uh, you know she she has the short part down so she was also short, but she is a, she's kind of pretty. Yeah, she's pretty, and they tried to make her unattractive because I I said to them you know when they said they were going to cast Sharon Small I, I knew who she was I said you know I mean she's awfully good looking and they said oh don't worry we'll we'll film her without makeup which they did and she still looked fabulous she you still know? shines so, yeah she's really nice looking but they gave her a terrible haircut but it wasn't really terrible enough I told them they should just I said look. Just give her a pair of nail scissors and tell her to cut her own hair and don't give her a mirror. Then she'll probably <laughs> achieve the look we're after. But they didn't want to do that. So, But she was good. I thought she was, you know, when I first saw her on the set doing a scene, I knew she would really be, she'd do well as Havers. I think I heard that during my research of preparing for today, Elizabeth. Mm. Was Did she see you there and say, oh, great, my big scene and the, the writer is here, the author well, is know, here? You know, that's really funny in that, that I, I, was, I was very surprised that actors actually react that way, mm. that, the, oh, God, the author's here. And, and it makes them very nervous. And I was totally surprised by that. I didn't think it would make them nervous at all. Um, you know, I wasn't nervous meeting them. You know, so... <laughs> But but they were they were quite they were quite nervous. Mm. Um, I do remember that um, that when I was uh, walking ac across the set, there was a woman coming toward me, and um, I, I I knew it was one of the actresses, and I I knew immediately it was Helen Clyde because she was the perfect Helen Clyde, not the one that they ended up using for most of the series, but the one that was in a great deliverance. Yes, I know. And she was the perfect Helen Clyde, and uh, and I said that to her. I said, "You must be Helen Clyde." <laughs> she said, "Yeah, I am." Oh, but she was tickled. Pink then. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, but, but oh, it was amazing. Aww. Well, um, when you're starting, um, let's see, should we start about starting, like starting this series, mm -hmm. right? Um, you probably had no idea that it was going to turn into something that was going to have this such legs here. No, yeah, that's true. I didn't know. I mean, I have always loved writing. So my main thing was to be able to write because I feel when I'm writing that I am the most 
who I'm supposed to be. And I've always felt that way ever since I was a little kid. The part, the part of me that was the writer was the, uh, was the whole person, really. So what I had always written, I had never attempted really to get published, but I decided in, uh, in 1983 to pursue writing uh, more seriously to, with an attempt to get published. So I wrote um, a book in 83, and then I wrote another book in 84, and then I wrote A Great Deliverance in 85, and that was the book that got published. The other two were also Lindley novels, one of which got published as my fourth novel when I went back and rewrote it. The very first one has never been published, and I would have to do just insanely serious revision on it. I mean, I would basically have to throw it away and you know, start all over again, which you know I certainly may do at some point, but, um, but, but not right now. Because it is still part, it's an imagined part of their oh, yeah. story. Oh, it's, yeah, oh, yeah, it's definitely part of their story, yeah. Oh. And they're all in it, except for Habers. It's before Habers enters the series, but Lindley's there, Helen, St. James, Deborah. Well, because originally it was going to be uh, around St. James, Yes, was it? exactly. He was going to be the main character. What I was trying to do as a, um, originally was I, I thought I would do uh, a version of the um, what Edgar Allan Poe called the formula detective story, which is where you have a, um, a an eccentric detective and an admiring narrator. And he started that, and then um, Arthur Conan Doyle perfected it with Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. But he had Auguste Dupin and then the, um, the unnamed narrator. I don't know if he's actually ever named. And so I thought that that would be interesting. Only the twist I would put on it is that the the detective, the eccentric detective, would be this forensic scientist who is had been um, had been handicapped due to an automobile accident, driven and the car being driven by the person who brings him the uh, the cases that he needs help with, and that is the detective inspector Thomas Lindley. So that was how it was really going to be set up. But what happened is that so the first book it, it's a, it's a St. James book in that he's the one who who solves the crime, and in the second book. Uh, St. James is the person who pretty much solves the crime, although um, it is, you know, he and Lindley are together when the, when the, when the big reveal occurs. Um, but what happened is that those two books were not published. So when I got to the third book, A Great Deliverance, I thought, oh, you know what, I wonder if this guy Lindley can solve a crime on his own. And so I decided to write a book and see, and that was the book that got published. So that sort of um, propelled Lindley into the leading role. So it wasn't that Lindley sort of muscled into the like into your mindscape as like the primary character. It was more let's try, let's see yeah, what exactly. Lindley can do. Yeah, yeah. Let's see if this guy can solve a crime instead, instead of needing <laughs> St. James. Do you think that has anything to do with people being more the publishing world being more prepared? For a detective in that role of crime solver, or just no, it was sort of because just the, accidental, just because like, the first book was written really badly. So. <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> it was bad. I mean, the, basically, what I proved to myself with the first book is that I could indeed write a crime novel, and I could carry it from beginning to end. You know, with a, a sustained narrative, and I really needed to prove that to myself. A sustained narrative. Yeah. Was this something you did in the summer because you were yes. a high school teacher at the time? Yes, that's exactly right. So I did it in I did it in the summer, and I wrote the entire book that that summer. I I had had uh, I sat down on uh, June. 
I think it was June 28th when I began and September 5th when I stood up. So I, I wrote the book during the summer. And it was a you know considerable stretch of time every day that I was doing it. But I had uh, a, a state-of-the-art at the time, uh, PC. It was an IBM PC with the dueling disks, you know, the floppy disks that you first had with one had the program on it and the other was the blank disk. And you had these two spaces to put them in, in the... Um, the dueling disks. Yeah, so I called it the dueling <laughs> disks. And frequently, you know, you would I'd lose things into, into the great void and stuff. Um, and then I had a printer that for a while was on the same table as the computer, but it was a, um, a daisy wheel printer. And the vibrations of the printer would also <laughs> cause the computer to go out of whack and cause me to lose things off the floppy disk. So it was a very exciting time to begin wow. writing. Oh, and plus because you knew you had September 5th looming yes, because you were exactly. going to go back into the classroom. Yeah, you wanted yeah. to have a full first draft. Exactly. I did. Exciting times, Elizabeth George. Okay, we're going to take a short break sure. and then we'll come right back. Today on the program, Elizabeth George is here. A Banquet of Consequences. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz um, engineering today and we'll take a short break. Be right back. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked. When you're unwanted, streets are uneven When you're down, when you're straight Faces come out of the rain When you're strange No one remembers your name When you're strange When you're strange When you're strange People are strange Good afternoon. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Elizabeth George is here. Her latest in the series, the the Linley novels, um, A Banquet of Consequences, is the book on the table before us. Um, Elizabeth, thanks for coming today. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for choosing the music, too. Oh, yeah. So we started with um, a bit of The Who, Uh a song from Tommy. Um, So why are The Who, like... uh, near and dear to your heart, if they are. Well, it it isn't so much The Who, although I I have to say that I um, saw them for the very first time in a nightclub in London in 1966 and had never even (laughs) heard of them. Of course, nobody had heard of them then. So are you serious? So that was really before they had broken, really? Yeah, they were playing in a nightclub and we we went. uh, And you were studying abroad. Yes, and I I was with a high school group and they said we were going to go to this... uh, a nightclub called Tiles, and we were going to hear this group called The Who, and we all sort of said, the what? Okay, well, we'll go. <laughs> and there was a huge crowd there, and uh, and that was my introduction to them. And then I saw them uh, later on in San Francisco, a few years later, when they were still um, breaking their instruments, which, of course, was their signature at the end of their, uh, at the end of their show. They would... Um, 
Peter Townsend would start beating his guitar on the ground, and you know he would beat the heck out of the guitar until it broke, and then ultimately there was a big explosion. I can't remember how. I don't know how they did the explosion, and then they would, when the dust cleared, they were gone. They had just sort of disappeared into the explosion. And they wouldn't even come on for an encore. No, they'd no, already that was done it. That, sort that, of, was that was it. That was the encore. encore I think was the breaking of the instruments, but it was pretty wild oh. in those days. But uh, but. And connects you to London in a way, too. Oh, certainly, certainly. Connects me in the very, very beginning to London. But I like that idea of, you know, uh, see me, feel me, touch me, heal me, which has a great deal to do with what's going on in this story as well. Yeah. Because uh, how, how so? Well, you know, without giving anything away, it it really is about, um, about someone who is attempting to uh, attempting to explain what has happened in the past and uh, can't really explain it because it would be too painful to explain. And so as a result of being unable to ex- explain it, unable to sort of break out, uh, this this character experiences uh, something called coprolalia, which is the spontaneous um, spontaneous bursting out of sort of nonsense language, or not necessarily nonsense language, but nonsense sentences frequently of a sort of disturbing either scatological or sexual nature. And, and for the, in this case, the person, it, it even... The, the sexual nature, really, there's a reason for that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's his way of saying, you know, see, you know, see me, feel me, touch me, heal me, especially yeah. heal me. Yes, yes. Um, and so those are some those are some difficult things, like you've you've just said there, like these, mm-hmm. like just sort of, in, and it's and it's part of the the landscape of the book, definitely. Yes. yes. Um, many characters also having. Um, sadnesses and, mm-hmm. and, and pain um either related to this yeah. character or or individually as well and um and so this is also then an emotional landscape and a psychological landscape that interests you in mm-hmm. character development mm-hmm. um yeah you've got a master's in psychology mm-hmm. um and so that's something that it seems like it's always informing your writing. It is. And and uh, first of all, I've always been really interested. I'm, I'm, I've always been interested in people in general. I, I'm very much more interested in what they have to say about themselves than in what I have to say about myself. So if, if someone um, uh, is in conversation with me, they will generally find themselves, you know, talking a great deal more about, about themselves and they will be getting, getting information from me just because I don't necessarily find myself a particularly interesting person to talk about since I live with myself all the time. But anyway, uh, but but human psychopathology and, and the things that torment people or, or things that they're afraid of, things that cause them anxiety, things that cause them to react the way they do, all of that has long, for a long time been really fascinating to me, really since I was a little kid. So it, it, I think it definitely comes out in my books because I'm always looking at characters. And as I develop character, what I want to know about that character is what's driving that person's behavior. What's the core? What is at the core of this human being? When I'm creating a character, that basic question has to be answered. I have to figure that part out or I really can't even begin to write the novel. So are you writing and writing about the characters individually mm-hmm. before yes could you, yeah could you talk 
where that's sure. not that of it. Sure. I, I create all of the characters in advance of writing a novel. The one thing that I know before I start creating characters is I know what the crime is. So I know the the killer, the victim, the motive, and usually but not always the means of the murder. So I know those things. Uh, I then people the world of the of that circumstance of this killing by asking myself questions about not only um the characters but about the the crime and the investigators and the and and everybody who would surround this particular circumstance so i i call that peopling the world and i will look at the killer and say okay now you know who who are the other significant others in this person's life because Generally speaking, in our lives, no one exists in a vacuum. And frequently in the golden age of mystery, they would have a victim who sort of conveniently had no one who was really um, mourning that particular person's loss because what the writer was doing was simply constructing an interesting puzzle to see if they could pull the wool over the reader's right. eyes and then not reveal the guilt of the uh, the killer until the last moment with the hope that the reader hadn't already figured it out. And that's, you know, that's, that's a perfectly legitimate way to a- approach these kinds of novels. That's what I call a mystery story, a mystery novel. Whereas with a crime novel, it's a little bit different in that the reader has an equal chance with the detective to solve the crime because the reader is not only getting the exact information that the detective has, but the reader is also getting to listen to the, everything that the detective thinks is a possibility uh, related to what has just been revealed. So it's a it's a device that is used to confuse the reader at the same time as allow the reader to be a participant. They just have to be smart enough to uh, to figure it out from all the stuff that the detective has said so far, if that makes any sense. And by so by the very nature of what interests you in telling these kind of stories, you need to use shifting perspectives yeah. within the book. Yes, yes, yeah. Definitely, because um, what interests me is these relationships. And if I only saw the story from the point of view of the detective, I would only ever be able to explore the detective and his or her relationships with other characters. But but my interest is wider than that because I want to look at how these characters that are one-time characters appearing only in the in the crime story. I also want to see how they relate to each other and what has brought them to this moment in their lives. So that's why I'm doing, I'm creating all these characters before I actually start writing the novel. So I've got the world peopled and it's really, it's peopled just very generically. I might decide that the killer has a younger sister, uh, a grandmother, and maybe the killer and the sister live with the grandmother, but that means then that something has happened to the parents. So they mm. might be they might actually be characters in the novel. They might be peripheral characters. And see, so what I'm doing right there is I'm starting to people out this person's world, and I do that then for the victim as well. So all of those people in the world that are just generic, they they constitute. Um, the, the characters who are actually going to be in the novel or are characters who uh, will be perhaps in the backstory of the novel. So the next thing I do after that then is name all of those characters. Do you draw it as well? Is it something where you have a character and then you have people coming off of that character? or? Um, 
Yeah, yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I would do it just exactly like not so much drawing. It's just like a list. Okay. So I and I'll and I'll write next to the list like it'll say you know, killer's sister, nineteen year old college sophomore, something like that. Okay. So that's all I would know. And then the next thing I do after that is to actually create the characters. So I begin with a name, which in uh, in, a, in a British novel is extremely important because it will signal to the reader uh, social class, level of education, you know, potential for success in society. I mean, there's all kinds of things that a name right. will immediately suggest to, especially to a British reader. And so before we go any further, I want to get back to the creating the character. Yeah. But this is a series that is set in England. Yes, of course, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I perhaps should have mentioned that. Yes, I was just yeah. taking it for, for granted somehow that it was out in the air there. But um, and so and you are an American. Right. right. <laughs> um, but we did play the song by The Who at the top of the show because that was one of your formative like connections into sure. England. And, Absolutely. And you've sort of researched and studied and decided to set the series there. Is that fair to say, Elizabeth? Or, it, it's uh, a good way to put it is probably that it uh, that it didn't occur to me to write a series any with a different location at all than England. I always knew Really? Yes, I always knew I would write about England because that is uh England has long been my my uh, fascination, not only, um, you know, as it as it was when I first got to know it in the '60s, but um, but throughout throughout my life and through British history as well. Um, I have I read Shakespeare when I was in high school. I taught Shakespeare when I taught high school. So I've loved Shakespeare my whole life, and that really c catapults you in, into British history, especially if you do the history plays and you want to learn anything at all, especially if you're teaching the history plays, and then you have to really learn what the history is so that you can explain it to your students. So uh, I've um, been interested in England, I would say probably since 1966, was when I became super interested before that probably starting in in 62 uh, I was uh, a young girl came to uh, join my eighth grade class at St. Joseph's Elementary School in Mountain View California and she was from Manchester England and uh, she and I became good friends and I got to know a lot about England from her so and even the patterns of speech, how she would yes, say things like, exactly. um, like a boot instead of a trunk. Or... Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and she spoke English, but the words were totally different, as you just said, a boot instead of a trunk. I remember one time she was at my house, and she was talking about pinching something. Oh, which, right. And you know, it was such, so amusing to... to you know, to hear to, that. So, and that means to, to, steal. to take something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Instead of, right. And yeah. My mom's English. So oh, that's okay. why. Um, but I'm not sure if all our listeners would know about pinching something, but may, now you do. Yeah, so yeah. listening to living writers, you never know what you're going <laughs> to pick up. And so the naming, though, for the characters is important because it's giving it's giving information in just yeah. even of several syllables. Yes, about exactly. A person. Yeah, it is. And um you know, really, the, the the king of naming characters was, of course, was Charles Dickens, but he, you know, he painted with a pretty broad uh, brush when he was naming his characters. When you think of Uriah Heep, I mean, what a great name! Um, not necessarily one that you're going to come across, but one that really says something immediately about the character. Right. And you know, Miss Havisham, really says something about the character. So he was he was brilliant at doing that. And I, I don't uh, paint with a brush that. Um, that 
broad, but I do try to make sure that the name is the sort of name that fits with the character's uh, social class um, and, uh, and education, educational possibilities, career possibilities, things like that. So Lindley was one that had an air of yeah, Thomas the Lindley. public school or something. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk more. Today on the program, Elizabeth George is here, A Banquet of Consequences, um, the latest Lindley novel, um, now, now out in paperback. So lucky for all of us. We'll take a short break. Be right back. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there, and it shows them. Pearly white Just a jackknife Has old Maggie Heath, And it keeps it uh, Out of sight You know when that shark bites With its teeth, big Scarlet billows Start to spread Fancy gloves, though Where's old Maggie Heath? So there's never, never a trace of red Now on the sidewalk, uh-huh, uh-huh, ooh, sunny morning, uh-huh Lies a body just oozing life And someone sneaking round a corner Could that someone be Mac the Knife? There's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just drooping on down. Oh, that cement is just, it's there for the way to dare. Five will get you ten old Mackies back in town. Now, did you hear about Louis Miller? He disappeared, babe. Drawing out all his hard-earned cash And now Maggie Heath spins just like a Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Elizabeth George is here. A banquet of consequences here on the table. Um, before we start talking chatting <laughs> elizabeth would you mind reading so that we get a sense of a banquet of consequences sure and and speaking of banquets this would this probably fits right in because this is a scene in which my um detective sergeant barbara havers who is in uh in dorset in the small town of shaftesbury on an investigation with her, uh, one of her colleagues, Winston Ancada, and he also is a detective sergeant. She decides that uh, that she's going to uh, cook him dinner because he has been cooking really fabulous bre- breakfasts for her. So uh, this is how it begins. Since Barbara had finished up first, she decided she owed Ancada a meal. He, after all, had been doing the honors with breakfast and lunch. Applying herself to dinner didn't seem like something that would tax her knowledge. There was a supermarket in the center of Shaftesbury, where she'd stopped before returning to Claire Abbott's house. She grabbed a shopping trolley and sauntered in the direction of whatever was tinned. 
there was a limit, admittedly, to her culinary skills. Of course, Winston didn't need to know that tins were involved. How difficult could it actually be to pull the wool over his eyes? All she needed to do was get back to the house in advance of his arrival. She could heat up whatever she happened to come upon that looked decent in the market, and she could also hide the tins. A quick trip up and down four aisles did the trick. She grabbed up tinned beef goulash and tinned beetroot, and then went in search of something that would do for a starter. She settled on savory biscuits with orange marmalade topped accompanied by tuna and mayo paste, and she then made her selection of pudding by scoring a frozen toffee pecan dream pie. After that, all she needed was drink, which was simplicity itself. Three cans of white wine would do for her, and three bottles of Fanta lemon would satisfy Winston. It was time he broadened his horizons anyway. One could not possibly stay hydrated over a lifetime on skim milk and water alone. She had the goulash bubbling away on the cooker and everything else, save the toffee pecan pie, on a neatly laid table when the sound of the front door opening heralded Ankata's return. She'd burned the, the pie a bit, but she'd knocked the blackened bits into the rubbish, where she'd also placed the tins and the jars from which her sumptuous repast had come. These she'd covered with the plastic carrier bags from the market, and for good measure she'd also crumpled up two old newspapers and smashed them down to hide the bags whose co-op logos were something of a giveaway. Ankata paused in the kitchen doorway. He observed her at the cooker, wooden spoon in her hand and steam rising from a copper-bottomed pot. He said, "'You doing dinner, Barb?' And he held up the shopping bag himself, adding, "'Guess I didn't need to bother. I was going to do us beef, mushroom, and lager pie, sprouts with bacon, shallots, and hazelnuts as well.' "'Shallots, eh?' Barbara wondered what the hell they were. <laughs> "'I did us a goulash,' she said. "'Can yours wait for tomorrow?' Can, he said, and he began to unload his carrier bag, whose contents proclaimed his intention actually to make the beef, mushroom, and lager pie from scratch. From scratch, she thought. She felt her mouth water. Beef, mushrooms, lager, a delicious gravy, a flaky crust, sprouts, bacon, nuts, and whatever they were. Oh, yes, shallots. But she got a grip and turned determinedly back to the cooker, where she lifted the lid of the pot and let its aroma waft into the air. Admittedly, it smelled a bit burnt. She scraped the bottom of the pan energetically to mix the burnt bits more thoroughly into the rest of the goulash. She said, have a drink and I'll bring this out. There's a starter on the table. Drinks as well. Will do, he said, balling up his carrier bag. I'll just toss. No! Wooden spoon in hand, she leapt towards him so frantically that he started. He looked from her to the rubbish bin. He said her name in what she recognized as a what-am-I-about-to-discover-here tone. And then he strode to the rubbish, lifted its lid, lifted the crumpled newspapers, and shot her a look once he'd clocked the tins. Barb, he said in a voice that spoke largely of his concern. Not for her, of course, but for his body. God knew he'd probably never sullied it with something factory-made before now. You'll survive, she said. It'll be a new experience. It might change your whole world. Live a little. Spread your wings. He considered her, then discarded the tins and jars, then her again. He chuckled and said, I should have guessed when I saw you at the cooker. I almost passed out. The shock and all that. At least it's a good thing you're not smoking over the pot, in it? He gazed at her earnestly. He sniffed the air. You didn't smoke while you were heating it up, Barb. Get some ashes in it and stir them up? 
Me? No. What do you think I am? Bloody hell, Winston. Go sit down. She slid her jar-top ashtray out of sight to the side of a stainless steel canister. When it obediently left her for the dining room, she flung the jar-top and its contents of five dog-ends into the rubbish, where a nice stirring mixed it all in with the rest of the evidence of her sins. And Kata was at the table, cooperatively tucking into the tuna and mayo paste. He spread some on a biscuit, topped it with marmalade. Had his mother been dead, Barbara reckoned, she would have been spinning. As it was, when he smiled and nodded his approval at her, she said, "'Your every secret will be safe with me.' She dished up the goulash. She handed over the beetroot. She sat and dug in. A little overcooked, a little burnt, the beetroot a little soggy, but what the hell. She dolloped tuna and mayo paste on top, tried it out with the goulash, and decided it wasn't half bad. She said, I got toffee pecan pie for our pudding, as she popped open her can of white wine. Just don't tell my mum, Barb. Like I said, she agreed. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Elizabeth. So that seems like that was was also fun to write. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always enjoy um, Barbara Haver's scenes. Well, she's really the easiest of the characters uh, for me to to write, mostly because she has so much edge and so much attitude. When you're writing, at least when I'm writing, the more edge a character has, the more attitude the character has, the easier it is for me to actually write in that character's point of view. Mm -hmm. It's much more difficult if the character is uh, sort of tranquil, uh, nice kind of human being, really decent, etc. So subtle. Exactly. (laughs) And I I did have a point of view character like that in a book called A Place of Hiding. And she she was um, a really, really, really good person. And it was very... Very difficult to write her because she just didn't have that, you know, the strength of attitude that some of the other characters in the same book had. Right. And and so and th- and thank you for reading for us. And I realize it's hard. It might be hard for you. I wonder, is it hard for you to pick pieces to read because of not wanting to maybe show show the story's hand in some places? Well, yeah, I, I generally pick a scene that is uh, that is something that is not going to give away good giveaway material in the story and in this case it is uh this is the entree to uh a scene in which they actually discuss what's been going on in their investigation after they finished eating so i have a little bit of fun with it first to illustrate not only who Barbara Havers is, but what the nature of her relationship is with with this man, Winston and Kata. And I think that's really an important part. It really rounds the characters out and allows you to know them a little bit more intimately than you would if the detectives, uh, if if my commitment was only to have the detectives serve the interests of solving the crime. But I always like to look at my novels as much much bigger than that, trying to do more than just uh, have an investigation into a crime. Because... That's what interests you. Exactly. Yeah, because that's yeah. I'm much more interested in that than I am in a, in a clever mystery. I like books that, um, you know, I like books that first of all that appeal to uh, my interest in place, and I like books that appeal to my interest in in uh, in human beings in in what drives them, and so those are the kinds of writers that I gravitate to, and that is how. I attempt to address myself to writing a crime novel. So how do you research place? Like, how do you decide, I don't know, in in London, how did you decide what neighborhoods people were going to live in or that you were going to set 
the the much of the action in Dorset, mm-hmm. most of the action. Yeah. Well, I uh, as far as the London part goes, I knew that I wanted this book to go between the two locations, London and uh, and Dorset. Why was that? Because you split up Lindley and Havers doing yeah. this. Yeah, in, in part because I, um, I wanted to separate the... Uh, the well, let's see how to put this without giving too much away. Um, I wanted to separate the uh, the characters who are most closely connected to the killing in the novel, so that I could explore them in a way that also revealed something about their relationship at the at the same time as that they weren't interacting with each other all the time. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I also sometimes what I also feel that um, if I can have a bit of a smaller tapestry to work with, it makes my job a little bit easier than trying to use the huge tapestry of of London, for example, because Mm -hmm. I, you know, I need to I need to place my characters in in their individual locations. I. that requires, in a, in a big cast of characters, an enormous amount of gumshoeing around London. And you termed that topographical yeah, yeah, gumshoeing. To, I call it topographical I gumshoeing. And and also because I don't want to be in London for every book. I think fun, part of the charm of my novels is the fact that the reader gets to experience a different part of England in, in every book. And the reader has also experienced the island of Guernsey and in uh, a location in Scotland. And you take that seriously, though. Oh yeah, you go yeah. there, you research. You, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I do nothing. I do nothing uh, via the internet aside from perhaps trying to find a hotel in the location where I'm going to be doing my research. But no, no, I always go to the location because I just, um, you know, there's certain things that you can't get off the internet. You can get general information, sure, but you really can't get um, the the intimate details of a place unless you're actually in that place because the internet's really not going to tell you, you know, for example, what's in the wheelie bin behind the supermarket. Right. You have to you go look? there to see that. <laughs> well, I have done, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the Internet's not going to tell you uh, what the parking bays are like in this particular car park behind the supermarket. And those kinds of things that, that really lend verisimilitude to a place. For example, the book that I'm working on right now takes place mostly in Ludlow, which is in Shropshire. And, uh, you know, one thing that's most interesting about Ludlow is the plethora of charity shops in the town. It's just kind of remarkable. I've never seen anything like it. And you really wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't get that from the Internet. You wouldn't get that unless you actually walked up and down the streets noticing them and thinking, oh, my God, there's yet another one. Right. All these right. different all these different organizations having set up charity shops. So to how many? Money. How many are you thinking? Oh, my gosh, there must be, you know, must be 10 or 12. Oh, this wow. This is not oh, in yeah. a particularly that's, that's, big town. Yes. When I was in Bude, Cornwall, mm. um, they had about six. What were you doing? In, <laughs> what were you doing in Bude? Well, that's where my gran was from. Oh my so God. we were. Seen, well, I have a book seen, that takes place in Bude. I was very, and that actually um, PBS did that book, didn't they? Because I feel like I got to see Lindley go to his no, Cornish. no, they didn't do that. That that oh, was okay. um, that was a suitable vengeance. Oh, okay, that, that's yes, okay. that's a book that takes place in Cornwall, but so does Careless and Red. Well, I have to read that one yeah. next then. And it's amazing. <laughs> Because it take it takes place in Bude. I don't call it Bude. I call it Castvelin. 
But if you're reading about it and you know Bude, you'll recognize that it's Bude. But what what I I called it Casavellum because I had to add some things to it that weren't there. Oh. Um, although there, you know, you know, in Bude where the you know the swimming pool that, that mm-hmm. that's in, in, like right the, on the edge the of the natural, sea, the yeah, that gets filled formation. with seawater. Yeah. yeah, so that you know that's in the book, oh. and, and uh, the barrel marking the channel marker, perhaps yeah, or yeah, well, the breakwater. <laughs> no, that isn't in the book, but the um, you know that canal that they have mm-hmm. that's in the book. Mm-hmm. So, I lived on that canal. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay, so so yeah, so it's de- it's definitely Bude. So why did you choose that particular name though? Because that almost doesn't sound. But I might not know it. I sound it Cornish. is Cornish. It is. Yeah, okay. it, it is. It is a Cornish uh, name, um, and I chose that um, well because it was in Cornwall. And the book itself has has many many Cornish place names and in, and people names as well. Oh, I, well, I will really. Yeah. So you probably really enjoy it, especially that. if your grand lived there. I, <laughs> I'm so enjoying talking with you that we're going to lose one. We're going to well. Let's take a short break and we'll. We're going to hear the song you chose, but we'll make it just a short clip of the song. You've got living writers today. Elizabeth George is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. writers and I'm 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 being sort of laughing a little bit because I'm really enjoying this this talk with you Elizabeth <laughs> today um on the program today Elizabeth George is here a banquet of consequences um yeah thanks for coming to the studio it's great and to talk I'm writing. very happy to be here oh, it's a lot of fun talking to you oh come back anytime <laughs> yeah and that, that's hard. happy to oh, happy to oh. <laughs> and well it's interesting because there's I do have so many actually questions for you and and place was such a primary one be, because um seeing how it informs obviously the Lindley series mm-hmm. um but also you have young adult a series um, right. going, and that right. you set in Whidbey Island. Right. That's the first time, other than in a short story, that I have um, written a book in, that takes place in the United States, and that's my the young adult series. It's The Edge of Nowhere is the first one, and um, ultimately there will be six. The fourth one comes out this year. But yeah, it was really fun setting a book where I live. Um, there are certain challenges to that that are actually uh, make it more difficult than writing about England. Um, but one of the things I ha- did that was so much fun is that, and continue to do, is that every place I use is real. So that if somebody reads the book and then decides to go to Langley, where m- most of the um, action takes place, 
all those places are really in Langley. The dog house is there. The South Whidbey Commons is there. It's the high school is there. The path where the young boy falls and is uh, rendered unconscious and ultimately spends time in a coma. I mean, that's there. Everything's there. So it's it's really kind of fun to do that. And so, what are some of the challenges? Well, the challenge is that for me, and I couldn't speak about other people, but but for me, when I live in a place, and this is probably true of most people, I stop noticing the telling details that make that place different from every other place. And the reason that I stop noticing it, and fairly soon, is that I'm going about my business. And when you're going at your business every day, like you're going to the grocery store, you tend not to notice uh, what kind of trees are there, what the trees are doing, what is the uh, what what is the rest of the flora like in this place. You're in your mind. Yeah, often. exactly. You've got other things that you're, you're thinking about and other things that you're doing in the course of your day. But when I'm researching a place, I'm there to notice the telling mm, details. Absorbing. Exactly. Yes. So I'm, I'm, you know, taking lots of pictures. I am um, speaking into my tape recorder. I'm taking notes. I'm transposing notes when I get home to the hotel, you know, putting them into my computer. So everything that I'm doing is um, is generating ideas and memories about the place that I've been. So it's in- incredibly important for me to make it distinct from every other place. Well, and we were talking about how you were um, inhabiting the like the English version of the English language for the mm-hmm. Lindley series. How is it to inhabit the like the young adult? Like if you're you're the voices of um, young people, like how how is that going? Like, is it, well, because, you know, I mean, we've all been young, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, but then you think, well, the lexicon changes, the yes. rhythms, the tones, how things, not just expressions, but patterns. Yeah, they, it, it, it does. I've, I have always written about young people in the Lindley novels as well. There's always, there's always been a, a great range in age. But in no, babies. Characters. We have no, <laughs> no babies. No babies, of course, are, don't add much to a drama. <laughs> as I always say, there, you know, there's a reason why you don't see babies in a novel unless the baby gets kidnapped or you know, develops a terrible disease, unfortunately, because babies just don't have any drama to them. Uh, in real life, they do. I recognize that, but not in not in fiction. And and I always say to people, you know, just name the ten great babies in literature. <laughs> um, but so yeah, writing about young people is uh, you're you're right that the dialogue, the lexicon, the rhythm of speech it it does change. But part of what I want to do, and what part of what I do with my British novels too, is I do want them to stand the test of time. And because of that. I try to give the flavor of something rather than delve into it deeply. You know, if you think of if you think of it, there's certain things that kids have always said, um, and there are certain attitudes that that kids have always had that I had when I was a teenager that you had when you were a teenager. So, and 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 those are probably universal to the experience of just going through um, adolescence into adulthood. So I try to stick with that. Um, I try to make the experiences modern but relevant too. So, so they're they're relevant to the uh, the adolescent on the verge of adulthood. For example, one of the one of the continuing characters is a is a girl who has uh, has is becoming aware of uh, her dawning lesbian lesbianism so so that's you know that is what she's dealing with through the course of these novels as it as it first you know comes she first realizes it you know and admits it and then learns learns to live 
live it, despite the fact that she has a, a, a very, very um, conservatively religious mother. So so that is that's her challenge. Another character is a character who was adopted out of out of a, U, a Ugandan orphanage, and he lives on in Lily White uh, on Lily White Willie, Whidbey Island. I think there might be you know ten ten minorities on the south end of Whidbey Island where I live. And so what he has to, to come to terms with is the part of him that is and will always be African. So my point is that everybody has something that they are trying to contend with in that series. And in all all your series. Yeah. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. As, as we all do as people. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. As everybody, is, everybody is trying to deal with something. Yeah. Right, right. Um, well, so I found, like, this is, this is a hefty book, um, but it moves, right? You're moving through it. You're being pulled through it. Yeah. How are you structuring it? How are you, do you have, like, how would you say, how do you make um, it so that it's the readers being propelled from paragraph to paragraph or chapter to chapter? Uh, that's uh, that's a really good question. I was talking about this um, last night. I was in North Carolina and um, somebody said, you know, these books are so long and um, and I just love them. And sometimes I'm reading a book that's 600 pages long and I just think, oh my God, I want to shoot myself. I'm only on page 200 and I don't feel that way about your books. How do you do that? <laughs> um, and, and I explained that, uh, you know, that, that part of it, because the, the novels aren't fast-paced. And, you know, by, by fast-paced, I mean having that action, 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 action. This happens, that happens. What's going to happen next? Well, they stop. They make dinner. Exactly, exactly. But so so what I, what I do is I'm really, really aware of... Um, of of sentence patterns and uh, sentence structure, and I'm also aware of um, linking par- one paragraph to another paragraph. And what happens then, if you do, if you write with that kind of awareness, is that you construct the narrative in such a way that it's the language itself and the uh, and the rhythm of the language that propels people through the narrative. So they're being drawn through, and they don't really even know why they're being drawn through. And that's why the guy said, "I don't understand why I can't, you know, I can't put this book down." And it's interesting, isn't it? Though yeah. that language alone could peep, could peep keep people reading so you don't really have to have all the stuff happening all the time but you do obviously have to have interesting characters and you know even you know that is my belief uh, was what people read for us they read for character they don't necessarily read for plot because the character you have to care about and if you if the writer can't make you care about the character of course, then you must have a plot that just spins right, right. through from beginning to end because the reader's not going to stay with the book otherwise. Otherwise, um, So what place does your, like, revising for you, Elizabeth, play in these, like, creating these sentences, these linked oh, structures? Oh, yeah, well, I'm... I'm always examining, you know, what I've what I've written, to to make sure that it that it flows the way I want it to flow. Uh, so I will always begin, as I say to my students, with a sentence that's going to take me somewhere. And I always use as the example the following: If I, I say to them, "Look, if you write the sentence Mary slammed the door." People might be interested, but if you write the sentence, Mary slammed the door for the third time that day, people are going to be more interested. 
that sentence is going to take you somewhere, whereas Mary slammed the door might very well take you nowhere. So I'm always trying to do that, is to lay down a sentence that will take me somewhere, and if it takes me somewhere, it's going to take the reader somewhere. Well, that's lovely. <laughs> um, so very quickly before we go, Elizabeth, um, you, you, what's your pro what's your drafting process like now for the new project? Well, I've done the uh, I've done the research the, the 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 first round of location research. I've done my interviews that I needed to do when I was there. Um, this is. Uh, as I believe I said, but forgive me if I did not say this, or forgive me if I'm repeating myself. So this book takes place in, in a town called Ludlow, which is in Shropshire. Ludlow is a great um, medieval town. It, it has, uh, it's where um, Edward the Fifth, excuse me, Edward the Fifth was uh, kept prior to his um, his father's death, Edward the Fourth, who is the older was the older brother of um, Richard the Third, of of Shakespearean fame, and Jeez, so you really know your English I, history. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, so it's a really interesting place. The castle is still there, of course. It's a ruin now, but they have five hundred listed buildings, which means a, a building of historical significance in this little town of Ludlow. So it's just it's just crawling with history. It's crawling with interesting buildings. It's got a little, you know, passageways, hidden byways, things like that. So charity sort of, shops. Yeah, yeah, charity <laughs> shops. So it's right up my alley as far as locations go. Mm. So that's where the the main action takes place, and uh, and and there and in a place called Ironbridge, which is where the Industrial Revolution began, and it's about an hour away from Ludlow. And so now you're going to start, are you going to start writing? Oh, I, I, the, I am in that. I'm oh, about 300, are. a little over 300 pages into that book, yeah. What does this book feel like to you, Elizabeth? It feels like a book that's going to need some significant revision right now. <laughs> but I do know, I mean, I know, I know who died. I know how the person died. I know why. I know who did it. But, um, but this has been a tricky book to, uh, to set up because of what's coming in what what I know is coming in the novel. Well, why don't we leave it there? Okay, that sounds good to and me. And then we'll talk again, yes, I hope. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, thanks. Today on the program, Elizabeth George, A Banquet of Consequences, the latest Lindley novel out in paperback now. Um, thanks so much, everyone, for listening to Living Writers today, to Michelle Pernia for, for bringing Elizabeth here, um, to the Liz for making us sound good. Um, and thanks to you all for listening out there. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Someone